podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome to a, another episode of Smart People Podcast. I am Christopher Stemp. And I am a very horse, John Rojas. Yeah, I was seeing how to try to slip horse into there, but... I just had to do it from the beginning. Yeah. John and I, we don't mean to sound less than enthusiastic. It's just been a rough couple of days. Yeah, a rough three or four days. Not a lot of sleep. You know, when, when your friends get married, it's just uh, it's time to unwind a little bit. But we're back in the real world, and the first thing we wanted to do was jump on Smart People Podcast and get this thing rolling. So uh, I do want to say that today's episode, I'd like to think it's a little diamond in the rough. We got this the idea to have this guest on the show from a listener uh, via Facebook. So let us know on Smart People Podcast on our Facebook page who you want to hear, because oftentimes we can get him on, and he was awesome. I mean, we wouldn't have found him. It's not like he's this prolific author or this big businessman, but he is an author and a businessman, and overall has, you know, just has a lot of good things to say. So I'm excited to introduce our listeners to Reggie Freeman this week. His resume reads like a CEO of a huge company. I mean, he's got more degrees than I can even I can even really go into. Let me see. He has uh, his bachelor's and his PhD from Bellevue University. He has his MS in Executive Fire Service Leadership from Grand Canyon University. He has his senior executives for state and local government education from Harvard University. And he's a young guy. We didn't know, but he's 33. Yeah, I mean, I was just blown away by listening to everything he had to say, just going out there, getting the type of experience that he had, basically serving the country, helping out the guys in Iraq, the guys and girls over there. I mean, just the best resume to have. I mean, I am completely jealous of all the things that he's done because he sounds like he loves what he does. He's really passionate about it. He's really knowledgeable about it. That's the perfect package. That's a good point. Why don't you kind of tell our guests, like, I don't think we have, uh, what is it that he does? (laughs) What are all these degrees doing for him? I mean, he's been all over the place. He's been an associate instructor at a fire academy. He was the chief of compliance, safety, and planning while over in Iraq. Fire chief for Lockheed Martin. He's the CEO of his The Freeman Group, LLC, which is a consulting firm that helps with emergency management. He's been a director of training for a Caribbean association of fire chiefs all over the place. Tons of experience, awesome jobs. Yeah, it's it's really cool how he it's really cool how he ties in the emergency management, the fire services aspect, you know, the things he's done in Iraq helping our our soldiers. He ties it all in to now he has his his consulting group where he deals with I mean he deals with different fire groups and firemen and all that, but also individual businesses and management and you can tell just in the way he describes it all to us. I mean, I'd listen to him talk. I, I'd consult, you know, I'd have him come consult yeah, my business. He's passionate about leadership and he's got some really good ideas in those areas. And he just really wants to see all the different generations come together more. And 
I never even really thought of some of the stuff that he was talking about. I know. You know it's 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 bizarre, especially when he was talking about having fire emergency services on bases and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's one of those things that you don't think about. Like you think our troops are over there fighting in a war, and you got to remember that obviously they're going to need medical services and that kind of stuff. But you think about other things over there. There's people providing all kinds of services that I've never even thought about. Yeah, and then when we talk about the emergency management, I mean, as he mentions, and we talk way more in the interview, but emergencies are becoming and will continue to become a bigger issue. So we better figure out how to how to fix it or at least prepare in advance. So we'll go into that more in detail in the interview with Reggie in just one minute here. Wanted to uh, remind you guys to head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Check out, you know, the write-ups we do and the things we do on there. Also, be sure to buy stuff through our Amazon link. Everybody shops on Amazon. Why not help us out? Because it is lagging and we blame you. We don't blame anybody. I blame you. Chris does, but I just got our bill for renewing our domain name and all that kind of stuff. And that just reminded me of... (laughs) Looking at the Amazon account, being like, oh, we're short a little bit. Yeah. Just so a little. Make sure to do that. But in other ways, follow us. Let us know what you think. Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. Join us at our website. Sign up for our newsletter. Go search for it. Or listen to past episodes. I'll, I'll tell you where to find it. So now I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Reggie Freeman and our interview about awesome things. All right. Well, Reggie, first I want to talk to you. I know that early on in your career, you provided fire and emergency services to troops in Iraq. And that's something that I think is really interesting because especially on the fire front, I guess that's not something that comes up very often. You think of, when you think of troops and military action, you think of a lot of war stuff in, in terms of we need medical personnel. But in terms of fire emergency services, what did you do there and what did you see in, during that experience? Yeah, you know, and, and that's something that when people think of fire and emergency services, they think about the local fire departments, which is, which is absolutely true. You know, there's 22,500 fire departments in the United States. However, people tend to forget that no matter where our men and women serve in in uniform, whether it be in uh, places of hostility, such as an active combat zone, or even military bases that are overseas, that fire emergency services or fire departments are a necessity. And it's actually written into the Department of Defense instructions. And so I had the privilege and the honor of actually serving the men and women in uniform in Iraq, uh, in active combat zones from November 5th, 2004 to November 12th, 2008. And what I did, I actually worked for Wackenhut, WSI, which is now known as G4S. And we actually provided all of the fire emergency services protection to the military bases in Iraq. And at our height, we had approximately 42 bases or 42 fire stations and well over 750 firefighters. Now, all of these were civilian firefighters that worked in municipalities in the United States. Some were former Department of Defense contract fire emergency services providers, and others were former military firefighters because you have also full-time firefighters in the Marine Corps, in the Air Force, and even the Army. But in the Army, they are Uh, actually engineering detachments that actually serve as firefighters. So uh, it was certainly an experience that I'll never forget. I actually, uh, my leadership and my management skills uh, grew robustly in the desert, as we call it. 
because we it was actually dog years. You know, one year in Iraq <laughs> in that environment was really equivalent to to three real years. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, the stress level, of course, was high. The things that we saw, the things that we had to do, uh, was certainly trying, but nothing compared to what the men and women in uniform had to do. And and so grateful I had that opportunity to serve the women who actually volunteered to protect us and our freedoms. Well, that's amazing. And really glad, want to say thank you for, you know, being part of that and helping out our our men and women in the service. And then when you came back, I believe, did you go straight into becoming the fire chief at Lockheed Martin? Yeah, I was actually a fire chief in Iraq. And from, from there, and actually my last assignment was at our headquarters in Baghdad at Camp Victory. Uh, on the north side of the base, south side of the base was Camp Liberty, and my title was Chief of Compliance, Safety, and Planning. Well, from there, I went on to be the fire chief for Lockheed Martin in Marietta, Georgia, which is in the North Atlanta suburban area. And that was that was very exciting because I actually got a chance to extend my service, you know, or the feeling of me uh, extending my service to my country because that's actually where we built the F-22 Raptor. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with that aircraft. Uh, we actually built and test flow uh, test flew that aircraft at my base at Lockheed, and as well as uh, we built C-130 aircraft, C-5s, and did some modifications to the P-3, uh, as well as uh, did some work with the F-16s. And so I was I I had an opportunity to work for Lockheed Martin, which is a fabulous company. Uh, they do a tremendous job in quality and quality and safety go hand in hand at Lockheed Martin. Absolutely a wonderful company to work for. Now, you know, I I wanted to kind of dive into something you brought up in our email conversations that I think is a a topic that we never put a name to it, and that's emergency management. Yet it's something that is only becoming more apparent and more necessary. And, And when I think of emergency management, I think of some of the worst catastrophes we've had, you know, in the past 10 years or so in terms of the tsunami in, in uh, Thailand and the Hurricane Katrina, 9-11. And oftentimes Absolutely. it seems like we are unprepared again and again. Is that the case or is that just what the media makes it seem like? We're really at a paradigm shift right now as it pertains to local government, which I think everyone is still feeling the effects of the recession that, uh, we, you know, depending on what analysts and, and specialists that you talk to, some say we're out of it, some say we're at the tail end of it. But I think for many Americans and their, and their families that they have to support, uh, it very much feels like we're certainly still in a recession. And I know locally for me and my jurisdiction that I work for now, you know, we're still, you still see and hear of layoffs uh, that's occurring here in the area. And, you know, you have rising cost, you have uh, limited workforce, uh, you have your talent pools that you have to select men and women to, you know, step up to the plate and fill the voids of the baby boomers retiring, especially depending on what part of your country you're in. And, and being in New England or the Northeast where it's a strong labor environment, there are a lot of entities or organizations that had great pension packages. And so you couple the financial restraints that we're currently in with the growing natural disasters that we're seeing. You know, it's really unprecedented. You know, as of right now, uh, of, of August of 2012, it's been the hottest year on record here in the United States ever. And so with the climate change, and depending on if you're a liberal or conservative, no matter what you call it, Mother Nature is changing, and she is letting us know it every <laughs> single day. 
And one of those ways that uh, we're affected by that is the hurricanes or the uh, unpredictable winter cycles that we're experiencing, such as uh, here in New England area when we had back-to-back -back winter storms in October and November of, of last year. And that drives cost. And so when you look at emergency management, which depending on your jurisdiction, uh, it may fall in the lap of the fire department or it may be a separate entity all in itself functioning as emergency management office, natural disasters drives cost. And I know just for one storm, it was as simple as a ice storm. Uh, we, it costs uh, our particular city uh, roughly uh, $64 million. And you don't get all of that when the governor declares a natural disaster or a, declares an emergency, a state of emergency. And then, of course, the president then declares the area or affected area a uh, disaster area. You don't get all that money back. And so the best way to combat that is to be properly prepared. And that's one of the phases within emergency management itself. You have preparedness, response, recovery, and mitigation. And so within that preparedness phase, there really has to be synergy, collaboration, and communication amongst the jurisdiction that is delivering the services, and then the citizens, and I like to call in this particular case the constituents, uh, who have to know what it is that they can do to better prepare themselves, whether it be for an emergency, an earthquake, tornado, ice storm, snowstorm, whatever the case may be. Because the better prepared citizens are, then, of course, the more effective any mitigation or incident action plan will be once you have to roll that out. Now, how do you see this trending? I mean, you talk about if we are still in the recession or the tail end of the recession. After we come out of it, I mean, do you see the government pushing to create jobs in the emergency management and response field? Do you see this as an opportunity to help lower that unemployment rate and get people out there and make sure that people are out there trained and prepared? Where do you see this going once the economy starts to strengthen? I certainly think there'll be a, a higher demand for, uh, I guess, to put it simply, competency in the field of emergency management. The field of emergency management in itself is fairly small, and that's why you see a lot of jurisdictions consolidating their emergency management office with their local fire department. And jurisdictions, especially local governments, to also include state governments, are consolidating at record paces. They're consolidating different departments. They're offering early retirement packages and incentives, uh, incentives to, to really drive down overall cost and capital. And so I think what comes out of this, once the economy turns right again and we can start, uh, everyone will start to be, feel a lot more comfortable and the unemployment rate will continue to go down domestically, you're going to start to see a lot more accountability, which I think is very important because where there's accountability, you'll have an increase in efficiency, an increase in effectiveness, and an overall increase in professionalism, especially when you're talking about the delivering of services or the rendering of services that the constituents expect. You know, constituents, they pay, uh, in some cases, top dollar in their taxes, and they would like to see that return on investment. When we talk about emergency management and, as you mentioned, the obvious changes in things like the climate and we're going to have more of these disasters, could you tell us what preparation local government or, or national government needs to put in place? What are the things that can help us before we're hurt? 
planning, organizing, structuring incident action plans, and then exercising those plans. That is really, in this current environment, the only way, and I think it holds true for any situation when you're talking about the rendering of public safety services, the only way that you're going to truly be prepared and truly be efficient. Create a plan and make sure your plan is uh, you have at the table both internal and external stakeholders, because unfortunately, some communities forget to include the citizens that are affected by the plan to have them at the meetings in regards to preparation. You know, there's no one knows the communities better than the people that live in them. And so whether that's through the community emergency response team, uh, the local the local CERT team, or whether that's just from an initiative from uh, the mayor or the city manager, depending on what form of local government you have, to develop a plan, discuss the plan, exercise the plan, and revise the plan as necessary, that is truly the only way that we're going to be really prepared and ready to step up to the plate and handle anything that's thrown our way. So the next thing I'm, I'm clearly wondering is, you know, I read about you and, and looked at all the things you do. I said, you know, he's done all this stuff in emergency management and fire. You are fire chief and, and uh, currently are the assistant fire chief for, for Hartford. I'm wondering how did you parlay that background into now your consulting group and your great passions you talked about is leadership and management principles? Sure. You know, and <laughs> I actually started my company in 2008, and I, that was when I was still in Iraq. I was, it was maybe, I'd say, uh, July of 2008 is when I actually formally uh, organized my company. And I was sitting at my desk, and I was like, okay, so what is that you love to do? And of course, didn't take long to figure that out. <laughs> and uh, I said, how can you communicate and help not only organizations, but people, because I also do executive coaching within my uh, with within the Freeman Group. Uh, how can you transcend everything that you've learned, the vast body of knowledge that you've gained, and your experiences into helping organizations, helping people? And so I came up with my consulting firm. And since then, we've been able to travel internationally to deliver leadership and management programs and have truly seen that we are making a difference because uh, we actually have the opportunity. We've partnered with the Caribbean Association of Fire Chiefs ever since 2008. And the first time that we made acquaintance was at Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic at their annual conference and meeting. And ever since we did a presentation on succession planning, we've been joined at the hip. And so taking the culture that lies within the Caribbean in regards to uh, self-proclaimed autocratic style of leadership and marginalization if you are outside a certain group or demographic, uh, we've seen a tremendous change on how they lead. And what we try to communicate to the, to the Caribbean Association of Fire Chiefs, or CAFC, is that we're not going to tell you the way that the Freeman Group says it should be done. We're going to show you the way that has been proven to be best practice and really beneficial for what your needs are. And so uh, the feedback that we receive uh, from seeing past students at year-in, year-out conferences is that Chief really appreciated what you taught me and I was able to use it in this particular scenario. Or a senior officer or the fire chief for a particular country saying, I was so inspired by your presentation, I went back, called all my officers into the room, and I asked what it is that they valued, that they thought we were doing well with the organization, the things they thought that we can improve upon. And 
understanding the culture of the Caribbean in regards to how they lead and how they manage what they know, that was tremendous for us. And so being able to change the way that people think, because some of the, you'd be amazed at some of the ideology that they would come up with or justifications for doing the wrong thing, as, if it, as, as in any organization. And a lot of times people want to do the right thing or they want to put their best foot forward. It's just they're a product of their environment. And so all they know is what they know. I work for a, a consulting firm for the for the Navy, and you know what you're hitting on now is really the change management stuff. What type of issues and how much pushback did you have when you go in there and say, hey, this is best practice, this way is going to save lives, this is going to be more efficient for you? How much pushback did you see, and, and how did you get through those struggles? Well, it was certainly a lot of pushback, and, and whether it be the consulting firm or just my real-life experience, uh, with leadership, uh, with a 300-plus member fire department, uh, it's all about it's all about changing the mindset and what has basically changed in the culture. Bottom line, right? And you know, when you think about culture or the definition of culture, it's simply put as one's values and beliefs. And a lot of times, where there's conflict, whether it be the head of the organization, uh, whether it be the CEO, the director, the fire chief, the police chief, etc. The values and beliefs of the individual conflict with the values and beliefs of the organization. And the values and the beliefs of the organization is simply the organization's mission, vision, and value statement. And so what I found in my experience and in, in my consulting or uh, me exercising leadership in the respective organizations that I've served is that it's a basic fundamental of communication, which is the foundation of any relationship, personal or professional, to where you have to clearly communicate expectations, but also follow up. Because a lot of times, especially if you're in a position of authority, you delegate tasks, but you never follow up. And one thing that I constantly reiterate and repeat to anyone that I'm talking to uh, in regards to this subject is that you delegate accountability, but you never delegate responsibility. If you give John or Jane an assignment that does not get you off of the hook, you give them a timeline on when you expect a product or a follow-up meeting, you actually let them know, make them aware that they can contact you at any time for any questions, and you actually then, last but not least, follow up when you said you're going to follow up. And so employees don't come to work and want they don't come to work and want to be marginal. A lot of times we think that we communicate in the manner that is effective for us, but we should be communicating to our personnel or the women that we work with in a manner that's truly effective for them. And that's something that a lot of people in positions of authority fall short on. And notice I keep saying position of authority because you're exactly that. Your actions dictate if you're a leader and your actions dictate if you're an effective manager. And so the goal for anyone in a position of authority is to become that managerial leader. Know when to manage your processes, but also know when to lead your people. You know, I, I love what we were just talking about there, and I want to go into it a little more because I find that even in my current job, and, and it's well known, um, the thing that it's a, it's a newer company and they're trying to do a better job of communication. It's grown rapidly. People are all across the country and the world. So what kind of things do you tell your, I don't want to call, call them CEOs, but your people in, in a position of authority, what kind of tools do you give them to determine the best method of communication? 
Well, you know, that's that's something that's a very unique question. And, and that's something that I think a lot of people struggle with is finding your niche. You know, one of my mentors who is a uh, Chief Kelvin Cochran of City of Atlanta Fire and Rescue, uh, who was formerly the fire chief of City of Shreveport, Louisiana, where he actually started his career and ascended the organizational ladder to the position of fire chief. Uh, he was actually appointed by President Barack Obama to be the United States Fire Administrator. And so he did that for approximately a year and a half, and then the mayor of Atlanta called him back and said, Chief, I need you to come back to Atlanta pretty please. And so he actually went back to Atlanta and took the fire chief position. And what he has reiterated time and time again is that you have to ensure that your people clearly have a path for success. There's no success without a successor. And so with that, if you're a number one in an organization, let's just say you're a number, you're a number seven in an organization, but you do have people that work for you. Don't be afraid to put someone in, your, in the position of your right-hand man or woman to be just as good as you are or better. And I think that is something that happens all too frequently because people feel like they're going to be outshined. Well, if you do not do that, then you're going to find yourself, you're going to not only handicap the organization, but you're going to also handicap yourself because the organization is not going to be able to reach its full effectiveness. I never thought of something like that because you do see, I mean, people in corporate America, it's, it's kind of cutthroat. So if you, you see people not wanting to elevate others, rather put them down to kind of climb over them. Do you find that shocking when you pass that news along, or at least people kind of feel guilty of, of doing it the wrong way? Oh, absolutely. And, and it's kind of ironic because as, you know, through my training and through my education and, and experiences, you could pick up people that's like that a mile away. And it, it could be just from certain key words. It could be their body language. It could be just their tone. And you somewhat, what I do, I somewhat smile on the inside and try to find a way to manage them as well as the situation. And when you're armed with information, and that falls into another title or subject, which is called emotional intelligence. Everyone is familiar with IQ, intellectual quotient, but a lot of people isn't familiar with the opposite, which is emotional quotient or emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence is nothing more than having a self-awareness, knowing how your actions affects other people, how other people's actions affect you, and being able to deal and manage those emotions so there won't be conflict or you'll be able to limit conflict and successfully navigate through it. And so if you have a high emotional intelligence or a high EQ, you're going to be a much more well-rounded, not only employee, but also supervisor and or manager. You know, in terms of EQ, that's something I've read about um, because I'd like to think it's a strength of mine. What do you think people with the that are high on the EQ or understand that? Where do they fit in best in an organization? Are they better at the managerial level, kind of like you said, mitigating problems throughout other employees, or what do you see those people tend to gravitate towards? Well, you know, I think it's a combination. I, I think you see them, or you should see them, uh, with throughout the organization. And any organization's goal is to have the most effective and efficient workforce as possible. That should be any organization's goal, because when you have efficiency, you have productivity. When you have productivity, you have gains. When you have gains, you have success. And so everyone has to find their own style. And going back to Chief Cochran, he clearly has always stated that 
Reggie, if you try to copy or emulate me, you're going to be a disdainful failure. You're going to fail. You can't be Kelvin Cochran. You have to be Reggie. You can't be the next Kelvin Cochran. You have to be the first Reggie Freeman. And so I think that's where a lot of people fall short is try to emulate the things that they see, the things that they hear on people that they think are good leaders and managers. However, you could take good traits from everyone as well as bad traits because everyone that's good, certainly there's things that they do or they say that you can learn from that you're not going to repeat. And so I think in this particular case, in regards to any person within an organization that is pursuing to heighten their emotional quotient, uh, you certainly have to start at looking at yourself. And when you do an EQ assessment or test, it's really generally done from a 360-degree perspective. And a 360-degree perspective or an assessment is where you send a survey out, and typically it could range anywhere from 50 to 100 questions to subordinates, coworkers, superiors, and then other people that may be in your organization or out of your organization that you deal with but is not in your direct chain of command or supervision. And so that gives you a perspective at all levels within the organization as well as out on how you deal with conflict, how you perform under stress, and how you come up with resolutions to problems. And so the most important ingredient to this is you actually taking this constructive criticism, looking at it for what it is as people giving you honest feedback to make you, first and foremost, a better person, and secondly, a better employee or a better supervisor. That's really interesting because in my company, they do a 360 review but they only really do it at the top levels, like your principals, partners, director, that kind of thing. And any time that I'm asked to, to fill out a 360 review on somebody, I'm almost hesitant to do it because I kind of don't care. And the, uh -huh. reason, the reason that I say that is because I'm not looked at from the 360 review. And I almost think that it would be a lot more beneficial for us at the lower level, too, just to hear what our peers thought or, you know, subordinates or, you know, any of our coworkers instead of just having the review come from your direct manager. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and when you do these assessments, it has to be anonymous because you want people to feel comfortable enough with yeah. being honest and telling the truth. And, you know, this is something just me being a people person and maybe this is just how I'm wired Every time I've been in a, my first supervisory role or position, of course, when I was overseas in Iraq, uh, we were required to do semi-annual performance evaluations on the men and women that was under our command. So I made it a point. Every time I did a performance evaluation, I would give that employee the same rating schedule that I was rating them on, and I would say, hey, please fill this out. Be honest. My job as your fire chief is to make sure that you have all the tools you need to be successful, and those tools just isn't axes and halligans and ladders and so forth. It's also the soft skills that I need to be able to efficiently lead you. Because if you're a member, if you're in a position of authority in an organization, and let's say you have 95 people that work for you, you may have to have 95 different leadership styles because everyone is different. And so I think it's critically important to have feedback go down, 
but also that same feedback go up and make sure you have an inclusive environment to where people feel comfortable giving you this feedback so they won't be afraid of any sort of retaliation. I want to switch gears real quick, and I just wanted to let you know that one of the reasons that Chris and I started this podcast is because we love talking to people who have found their passion and then created their job or career around that passion. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, the, the questions that I had for you was, how much experience did you have you know, how much did you build up prior to sitting down in 2008 and starting your company that allowed you to say, okay, I've got enough experience and now I can create something within that? Because Chris and I sit down all the time and we say, hey, we're passionate about this stuff and we might not have that much experience in that area. So, it, you know, we're not really justified in trying to go out and start something in that. How long were you in the field and how much experience did you have prior to creating your company? Well, you know, John, I was the... I, I had the same mentality and my career started in Mississippi and starting in Mississippi and being, I was actually the first African-American hired for my respective fire department. And so I went through some significant challenges and some adversity that one would say would build character. And so I was always told what I couldn't do, what I shouldn't do because I was so young. And I used that as motivation to try to continue to excel and push the envelope of excellence. So I had maybe, I had four years of supervisor experience before I started my consulting company. And so a lot of people were like, okay, why are you a consultant? I have ties that are older than you. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I even hear that to this day. Actually, one of my mentors, he's like, how old are you again? And I told him, I said, I'm 33. He says, you know what? I have a belt older than you. I was like, sheep. I appreciate it. Yeah, way to motivate me. But, uh, you know, I always told myself I'm going to control my own destiny. But also, you have to keep in mind that you also have to be realistic. And so I was always an athlete. I was always uh, very fond of being in a team environment and wanted to be in a team environment. And that's one of the reasons why I joined the fire service. So... I was a uh, captain of the football team, captain of a track team, All-American actually in track and field. And so I had some leadership experience there, which is totally different to being in the workforce. Uh, and also had some personal, I guess you could somewhat call tragedies with drug addiction and domestic violence in the home and witnessing that as a child. And then you transform that into the workplace as you get your professional certifications, you get your higher education. I was able to go to Harvard University uh, and now a fellow of their school of government uh, with the senior executives for state local government program. And you take all that experience and you put it in a bucket and then you just stir it up with a big stick. <laughs> you also just realize that you're a lifelong student of people and leadership. And I think that's something that's critically important. If you're anyone that's a supervisor, or you're an employee that have ambitions to become a supervisor, manager, or CEO, or director, you have to make a commitment to be a lifelong student of people and of leadership because they go hand in hand. You can't be fond of one and not the other and think you're going to be successful. And so with that, I always strove to be the best I can possibly be, treat people fairly and equitably, consistently which is another word that is not in the vocabulary of a lot of people in positions of authority, consistency. Because no one should come to work or be dealt with an issue that you're going to have to resolve and have to guess what they're going to get. They should know exactly how you're going to react. They should know exactly 
what the response is going to be if they violate a company policy or if they come in late, especially uh, if there's any kind of workplace violence. You know, there shouldn't be any guess of what John, Chris, or Reggie is going to do because you're consistent. You communicated a message and you follow up on what you say that you're going to do. And so uh, for me, it's a passion of people, a passion of leadership. And right now, I, I, matter of fact, I leave for my residency for my PhD in the morning. And when I get back, I'll be meeting with a Yale professor that is one of the grandfathers of emotional intelligence studies, who's just, I just found out after doing some research on my doctorates, uh, he's been 30 minutes down the road for the last several years. Oh, wow. So I'm giddy. You know, I'm all giddy, and I call the university to talk to the doctor and say, hey, I'm a big fan. It's, you know, it's almost like it's uh, Axl Rose or something. Right. Big fan and, you know, just want to know, would you have time to sit down and go over some ideas for my dissertation and so forth? And he's like, absolutely. That is the kind of stuff that motivates me, that inspires me, that, that keeps me going, is to be able to obtain that knowledge and information and just be a sponge, but most importantly, consistently treat people well and exercise fair and equitable leadership. That's a great summation of, of everything you do. And you can just tell the, the passion that kind of comes through when you talk about it. And that's, I mean, that's why we like to talk to people. It's to see everybody ticks with different things and, you know, enjoys different things and kind of, we want to sponge it all up too. The last thing I did want to talk about is just to add to your resume, you're also writing a book. When is your book coming out? Uh, I'll be done with it probably in the spring of 2014. Okay. And it's going to be published by Jones and Bartlett. Okay. And it's, it's titled the new fire officer and, um, your, your description was amazing because it talks about the difference in, in fire officers now, as opposed to just, you know, a a couple decades ago, if that, could you kind of talk about that a little bit and summarize what that is all about? Absolutely. You know, Looking, I'm really fascinated by the generational differences and the different characteristics that goes along with the different generations, such as, uh, and, and a lot of people, you have people that are proponents of the printed generational differences and say, well, there are anomalies within generations. And, and sure, absolutely, there are certainly anomalies. Uh, I'm an anomaly for Generation X. Uh, some of the characteristics of Generation X is that, you know, they're not as motivated as the baby boomers. You have to push them along to get them started. Well, I'm just the opposite. I'm self-driven, I'm highly self-motivated, and I'm very ambitious. But that's one of the characteristics that comes along with someone in Generation X is we're the generation of ambition because we know if we do want to compete for that senior level position or for that management position, we have to be smarter than our elders in the baby boomer generation. Because when the baby boomers were coming up, it was all about tenure. It wasn't truly about education. And so if you look at just the educational level in regards to the amount of members of Generation X who have graduate degrees and, and the amount of members within the baby boomers who have graduate, graduate degrees, there's a staggering difference in the favor of Generation X. Because we know that we're younger. We know that we have that quote strike against us. And so we have to make up the ground somehow. And we do that through credentialing, through professional certifications and training, and through higher education. And so that transcends, of course, into the workplace, especially a fire department, to where within a fire department, 
everything is is tenure equivalent to competency. And I'm dealing with it as, as actually the youngest chief officer in the country at a metro department. I have 11 years in the fire service, and I'm second in command of an organization of 380 members. That's unheard of. It doesn't happen. But there's a lot more Reggie Freemans that are coming up, not only in the fire service, but in the workplace across the country that are students of people, students of leadership, and are pursuing higher education. And so now there's going to be this shift or this cultural change to where the workplace is going to be redefined from tenure equivalent to competency to just organizations looking for the most competent person. And when I think about the definition of competency, my personal definition is training, education, and experience. But the most important element is the proper application of your training, education, and experience. You know, competency is not truly how long you've been doing the job. It's how well you do the job now because it's such a competitive market, especially when organizations are cutting to save costs and the younger generations are cheaper because they'll come in and take a lower salary. And so there's this, uh, I, I used to call it, uh, I used to call it an, an, an unspoken war, but I kind of tone that down uh, <laughs> a little bit. But there's this unspoken rift between the two generations because the baby boomers are saying, well, these young guys, they don't know anything. And then the young guys are saying, well, these old guys, they're not smart enough. They don't have any degrees. And so instead of, instead of there being the synergistic flow of information and institutional knowledge, you have this infighting. And once again, that goes back to leadership. The leadership of the organization should be addressing these issues and finding a way to capitalize on the experience that can never be replaced, no matter how much training and education you have, but also uh, being able to take advantage of the ability for members of Generation X, members of Generation Y, to be able to come in and pick up new things very quickly. Yeah, that's one of the things that I find funny because I, I fall into Generation Y or X, I mean, depending on what numbers you're looking at. Mm -hmm. But with, with Generation Y, we love to be to be in a collaborative environment and collaborate with others, network and all that kind of stuff. But we like to do it with each other. And like you were saying, we don't like collaborating with the baby boomers because we don't think that they know the same things that we do, especially with like technology and new ways of looking at things. But I just right. found it interesting that being a collaborative generation, but we still won't collaborate with the older ones because they obviously have so much to teach us, you know? Absolutely. And it boils down to pride. Yeah, you know, yeah. on both sides, it boils down to pride. And so holding staff meetings, holding department meetings, constantly, consistently communicating the expectation that we are, quote, a team and nothing is going to get in the way of the success of the organization. Put your personal differences aside. This is my expectation on how we're going to function and manage. And if you have an issue with it, get with my secretary, let me know, make an appointment, <laughs> we'll sit down and talk about it. That's not happening in organizations as it should consistently. And that's why you have some of the human resources issues, and especially in fire departments. I, I know this to be true. Fires are down, HR issues are up. <laughs> you know, then one of my, my first captains, he says, you know, son, you're going to learn that the only thing that cries worse than a newborn baby is a firefighter. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I was, you know, I called him. It was about four years ago I called him. I said, hey, Artie, you were right, man. He said, hey, I told you. <laughs> he know, he's, he's been there, done that. Exactly. That goes to the experience. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. 
All right, Reggie. Well, I did want to say thank you so much for being on the show. It was great talking to you. You know, it's it's very motivating and uh, listening to you, seeing all you've done. And so I wanted to say thank you and uh, best of luck with all of the things you have going on in the future. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure and honor. All right, Reggie. Have a good one. All right. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, welcome back to our fantabulous outro on Smart People Podcast. Thanks for being part of the outro. Yeah, thank you. Another fantastic interview with somebody that values leadership and just overall valuing each other. I mean, he, Reggie's a people person. He, he even says, you know, I love being around people. And that's kind of something that Chris and I gravitate towards because we want to talk to people that are talkative and fun and out to help each other. Yeah, which he definitely he was. definitely does. So it was, it was great. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We'll make this short and sweet, but as always, got to throw some plugs in there. The biggest thing is just join the community. Be, be part of this podcast. It's going places. We got things in the works that I don't think we can tell them about yet, yet, but be part so you can say I was there when. Smartpeoplepodcast.com. Twitter at Smart People Pod. That's all I got. That's all we got. Catch you next week. And make sure you keep in mind what's going on on Facebook because we'll let you know some cool things. We have, I mean, I think we have six or seven interviews lined up in the next two weeks. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. And hopefully the voice comes back. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs>